Well, today's the day that we actually get to land the plane, as it were. We are going to, by the grace of God, wrap up the book of Joshua this morning. And uh, we've, we've been journeying the last, uh, I don't know if that's a good cheer or a bad cheer, but we've been, we've been journeying the last 12 to 14 weeks or so in, in the book of Joshua, going with God's people, journeying with the nation of Israel, learning more about what it means to follow a faithful God. And I trust that, that you've been both encouraged and, and challenged as we've worked through some of these passages. Some of them are pretty difficult to, to go through, uh, but also some of them are very inspiring. And so uh, as we wrap up our time here, we'll, we'll look back. We've followed the people of Israel as they've crossed the Jordan. They've gone into the promised land, into the land of Canaan. They've, they've driven out other nations through different military campaigns. They've settled the land. They've divided it up. And this has been the fulfillment of the promise that God gave long ago to Abraham when he said that he'd make his descendants into a great nation that they'd be a blessing to other nations. So this theme of, of following a faithful God, hopefully you've seen it throughout the time that God has been the one who has led the people and fought for them and provided for them, that it's been his presence with them every step of the way. And so now as we come to this, this final chapter in the book of Joshua, it's really a, a parallel scene almost to, to what Pastor Jay walked us through last week in chapter 23. Uh, Joshua, in, in his kind of last recorded act, is, is gathering the people together bringing all of Israel together to renew the covenant before the Lord, to rededicate themselves to him in light of all that has taken place. So I'd encourage us, uh, if you've got your Bibles or devices, you can turn or tap, I guess, to, uh, to Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible with you today and you would like one, uh, what you can do is actually stick up your hand, and we have ushers who would uh, be giving out one of these Bibles. We've got these little blue Bibles. If anyone wants one to follow along, you can do so. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, uh, you can keep this. This is our gift to you. We, uh, we certainly believe in the Bible here at Stone Ridge Fellowship. We believe that God's word is the source of all that we do and say. And so this is an important thing to have for yourself as you read and learn and grow. So that's our gift to you. Joshua chapter 24. Are we there? We're good? I'm going to read the first half of the chapter, and then uh, we'll work our way through the rest of the text later on here. This is the word of God. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. And then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Sarah to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt." And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land as I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. 
And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. 14. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's take a moment to, to pray together. Father God, there is no one like you in heaven or on the earth. And in saying that, the, the totality of that statement is lost on us with our limited, finite human minds. As we just were singing moments ago, your ways are higher than our own. And Lord, you have chosen in your grace to reveal yourself to us, that you have made yourself known You've made yourself known through the beauty of your creation. You've made yourself known through your word. You've made yourself known through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, you have proven your faithfulness. And as we have journeyed through this book over the last number of weeks, we have seen that time and time again, how you have been a faithful God. And so Lord, now as we come to the end of this book, in this final chapter, we pray once again that you would speak to us that you would speak to us through your word, that you would reach into the depths of our hearts, draw out things that, that we might not even be aware of, that might be holding us back from knowing you more and experiencing you more. Father, we pray that your word would speak for itself this morning. Lord, I plead that, that you would speak through me. We ask that, that you would honor and glorify yourself through all that takes place in our time here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Famous last words. Famous last words. That's sort of a, a phrase we use in, in everyday conversation, and often it's, it's met with a, perhaps a sense of skepticism, you know, I'm, I'm going to be back in 10 minutes. Famous last words. You're going to run into someone and talk to them, and you're going to be an hour at least. Or, she said it's not going to hurt. Famous last words. I ended up in the hospital when I tried that. We use this in everyday conversation, but there are many instances recorded over history of some famous last words of notable individuals. And some of them range from the profound, some to the bizarre. And so here are a, a few quotes. I, I gathered some to share with you this morning of some notable historical figures of their recorded famous last words. Lou Gehrig, the Hall of Fame first baseman for the New York Yankees, when he is giving a, a farewell speech, he had to announce his retirement from the sport of baseball due to his ALS condition, the disease that afflicted him. He said, I might have been given a bad break, but I've got an awful lot to live for. I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of this earth. Nostradamus, the, the famous French doctor who was supposedly known for his ability to predict the future, he allegedly told his secretary one day, you will not find me alive at sunrise. And he was found dead the next day. Benjamin Franklin's last words were reportedly, a dying man can do nothing easy. Steve Jobs, the, the CEO of Apple, when he was in failing health, surrounded by his family, kept repeating the words, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. Sir Winston Churchill, one of the, the greatest speakers of the 20th century, having suffered a stroke at age 90, uh, just before losing consciousness, he supposedly said, I'm bored with it all. I'm bored with it all. 
Now, perhaps in, in hearing some of these quotes this morning, you might be reflecting on some moments where, where you were with a loved one, perhaps, and, and you think of the final words, the famous last words they left with you. Or, or maybe you're thinking about what you might want to say when your time to leave this earth comes. What, what are some words you might, to share, might want to share with those gathered with you? If you could control those final moments, what would you say? Well, the majority of this, this final chapter here in Joshua, it's very much a famous last words moment where, where Joshua, nearing the end of his life, we heard last week as Pastor Jay walked us through chapter 23, Joshua said he's about to go the way of the earth. And so this scene that we read about, it's, it's more like a Lou Gehrig retirement speech than it is a, a Steve Jobs deathbed moment. And so in his final recorded acts, Joshua having walked in steadfast faithfulness with the Lord all these years, he wants to call the entire nation together one more time to publicly remind them of what is most important. He got, he's prompting, God has prompted him to again bring everyone together to renew the covenant. And think back for a moment, if you can, to, to chapter 8 of Joshua. Pastor Stephen walked us through that one where, where the, the people renewed the covenant at the time and they gathered in the valley between the two mountains. There was Mount Ebal on the one side, which represented the curses that would come if the covenant was broken. And on the other side, there was Mount Gerizim, which was a reminder of the blessings that would continue as the people walked in the covenant. And so this, this same location, Shechem, is the same place in this valley between the two mountains. And the, the significance goes beyond just that in Joshua chapter 8. Shechem is the first place recorded in the book of Genesis where the Lord appeared to Abraham and where the Lord promised to Abraham that he would give that land to his offspring. Abraham built an altar there. And so how amazing is it then that the descendants of Abraham, now numbering in the hundreds of thousands, some biblical scholars put the, num the numbers upwards of a million at the time, are now gathered some six, seven hundred years later in that valley to renew the covenant with God. What a faithful God who has kept his promise. So Joshua begins here by speaking on the Lord's behalf. He says, this is what the Lord says. And he recounts the beginning of the history of Israel when Abraham responded to that call and God took him and moved him to the land of Canaan. Abraham had been serving other gods, it says, but God promised that he would make Abraham's offspring many, Isaac and then Jacob and Esau. And so you can read about this in the book of Genesis and, and towards the end of the book of Genesis where Jacob and all his children, they end up moving to the land of Egypt uh, because of the famine. And then the early books of the, the early chapters of the book of Exodus, where the people of Israel become slaves there in Egypt. And then verses 6 and 7 here talk about the miraculous escape, the exodus from the clutches of the Egyptian army. The Lord made a way out. And then after that, the next few verses record the events of the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 21 through 24. The Lord fought for the people against the Amorites and the Moabites. And the Lord worked in, in the heart of Balaam and changed his plans to curse. And instead of cursing, he blessed the people. And after that, verses 11 to 13 in this chapter recount the journey that, that we've been on these past number of weeks throughout the book of Joshua, the different battles that have been fought. So in about 13 verses, you get about 700 years worth of Old Testament history here. And why is all this covered? Why is this being said now? Well, Joshua is speaking on behalf of God, and there are two things to notice here. The first is that this, this is a ceremony to renew a covenant with God. And so as such, it follows the same structure as any other covenant in the ancient world at that time would. See, in the ancient world, covenants were used by those in power to control and impose terms upon those that, that they were over. And so this is a holy, and holy covenant between a loving and faithful God and his people, but this structure seems, follows the same pattern. 
the sovereign, the one in power, God, provides a, a backstory, a, a prologue, if you will, recording his previous dealings to the subordinate, in this case, the people of Israel. He tells them how he's been gracious to them, what he's done on their behalf. And then from there, there's a written record that preserves the covenant agreement. The sovereign outlines the clear stipulations. These are the terms that you must hold. And then the record comes, and, and witnesses are named. The written record is recorded. And then there are blessings and curses listed based on whether or not the subordinate will keep the covenant. This is what we saw back in chapter 8, and we see it again further down in this text. But I think the second reason that the Lord is doing this, why, why we're walking through the history of Israel here, is because in his great love and faithfulness, God wants the people to remember what he has done. Remember what God has done. This is a theme that we see throughout the entirety of Scripture. Deuteronomy 8.18, you shall remember the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 15.15, remember that you were once slaves in the land of Egypt. 1 Samuel chapter 7, Samuel builds the, uh, puts up the Ebenezer stone, a stone of help, commemorating God's help for the Israelites against the Philistines. Jesus, of course, gave us the ordinance of communion to take the Lord's Supper together, to remember his sacrifice for us. If you read through the book of Acts, the different evangelistic sermons that are given by people like Peter or Stephen or Paul, they recount at great length the history of God working, how he has revealed himself. And so as followers of Christ, it's in our spiritual DNA to remember, to look back on what God has done. Why are we to remember? Because we forget. Because we so often forget. And because when we actually do look back, we know what we've been delivered from. When you remember what God has done, you know what you've been delivered from. And so for the people of Israel, th their history is a testament to God's deliverance. I think of the example of, of being at the shore of the Red Sea. The Egyptian army is pursuing them. It's recorded, mentioned here in verses 6 and 7. And so uh, this exodus is about to reach a standstill on the shore of the Red Sea. And then suddenly God, working through Moses, performs this miracle so that the people of Israel can walk through on dry ground and reach the other side free from the Egyptians. We believe this to be a miracle that happened long ago. We, we believe by faith that this took place, but sometimes it's hard to actually picture what took place in those moments when, when the waters of the Red Sea parted and the entire population of a nation went right through. But God has worked in miraculous ways in our day and age, and he certainly worked in miraculous ways in our lives as well, in big ways and in small ways. I'm, I'm sure if we took time this morning to share with one another some of the miracles that, that he has performed in your lives, we wouldn't have much of a long weekend left. And as we sang earlier, this is my story. We all have a story. We all have a song of God working. Well, you might be saying, well, it sure would be nice to see a, a grand-scale miracle like the parting of the Red Sea in this day and age. It would be nice for this generation to get to see something like that. I know I've certainly prayed at times and asked God to, to reveal himself in such an obvious way that it would just bring sweeping revival across the land. Maybe you've prayed something like that too. I recently saw a trailer for an upcoming World War II film. It's coming out later this summer. And it chronicles the, the miracle of Dunkirk. The story of how in the spring of 1940, early on in the war, the, the armies of Nazi Germany had moved through Western Europe just so quickly that the majority of the Allied forces were trapped. They were trapped in northern France. Approximately 400,000 members of the British Expeditionary Force, soldiers from mostly the UK, but other nations, including Canada, were cut off. They were surrounded. They needed to be evacuated from mainland Europe, from northern France, across the English Channel, back to England. And so the situation was bleak. 
And, and during that time in his May holiday weekend address to the nation, broadcasting on the radio, the king, King George VI, called for a national day of prayer for the situation. And he said this, At this fateful hour we turn, as our fathers before us have turned in all times of trials, to God most high. Let us with one heart and soul humbly but confidently commit our cause to God and ask his aid that we may valiantly defend the light. And so as a result, churches across the kingdom were packed on Sunday, May 26th. And over the next week, a miracle unfolded. For reasons still not totally known, war historians sort of go back and forth behind the reasoning for this, but, but Adolf Hitler ordered that the German forces be halted. The ground forces were to be halted. And, and the hypothesis that goes forth the most from different war historians is that Hitler was confident that his air force would be able to do the job, to find the troops and, and take them out from the air. But this was never fully proven because on the Tuesday of that week, a large storm came up and grounded the air squadrons. That bought the Allied soldiers more time to, to get towards the shore, towards Dunkirk, to meet the British naval fleet. Also amazingly, soon after that, the English Channel, a body of water that is notoriously choppy, became unexpectedly calm over the next couple of days. And it allowed the British boats to cross at faster than usual speeds. And so Winston Churchill, who I mentioned earlier, he was only a couple of weeks into his tenure at the time as the British Prime Minister, he called out to the people in order that any and every possible seaworthy vessel that was nearby be put into action, be put down into the sea to help shuttle the Allied soldiers. And so as a result, rowboats and fishing boats and all kinds of leisure craft and car ferries went back and forth across the English Channel, shuttling the troops, bringing them back to England to safety. And so within a week, nearly 340,000 Allied troops made it back safely to England. In response, the king declared that Sunday, June 9th, be a national day of thanksgiving. There was an article in the Daily Telegraph of London by C.B. Mortlock, and it said this, The prayers of the nation were answered. The God of hosts himself had supported the valiant men, and two great wonders stand forth. On them have turned the fortune of our troops. I have talked to officers who made it back safely to England, and all of them tell of these two phenomena. The first was the great storm that broke over Flanders on May 28th, and the second was the great calm which settled on the English Channel during the days following. Officers of high rank do not hesitate to put down the deliverance of the British Expeditionary Force to the fact of the nation being at prayer on Sunday, May 26th, two days before the great storm and then the great calm. The, the people of England knew that a miracle had taken place in their midst. Our God has worked miracles in recent history as well. He's proven his faithfulness to you and to me time and time again. We're to remember what he's done because we just so often forget. What is it that you've been delivered from? Abuse? Addiction? Anger? Maybe hopelessness? Your own selfishness? What odds has the Lord overcome on your behalf? And when you look back, do you have a sense of wonder? Do you celebrate what he has done? Look again at verses 12 and 14. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you'd not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. I led you, God says. I promised to make you into a great nation. I rescued you from bondage and slavery, and I delivered you in miraculous ways. I provided for you. I fought for you. And I imagine being there as, as Joshua is saying these things and as he's sharing and recounting the faithfulness of God, and I imagine looking around at the crowd gathered and, and seeing the looks on the faces of people 
I'm sure some were probably weeping for joy as they were reminded in a, in a new way just what God has done for them. Maybe some were just so joyful that they couldn't bottle their laughter. Maybe they were bursting out laughing in joy. Maybe some were, were reflective and, and perhaps pondering what God might do next in their midst on their behalf. And so it's in light of this powerful working that, that Joshua issues an ultimatum. Let's look at verses 14 and 15 again. It says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Because of what God has done, Joshua is saying, because of what he's done, you're to continue to fear the Lord and to serve him faithfully. Just as he's been faithful to us, so we too are to be faithful to him. That is the covenant term. Because of this history, put away the other gods. Those gods that Abraham had worshipped before he came into the land of Canaan. Those false gods, put them away. The false gods of, of the other nations that have just been driven out from among you, put them away. Pastor Jay was talking last week about the idols in our lives and the need for us to, to recognize those idols and to rid ourselves of them. Know the idols and rid yourself of them so that you may fear and serve the Lord. But notice what he says, what Joshua says in verse 15. If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, then choose from among the false gods whom you will serve. That may seem odd that, that the leader of Israel is sort of offering to his people a selection of false gods to worship. You know, which false god would you like to worship? Might I interest you in this fine Mesopotamian option? Or, or how about this, this god of the Amorites over here? It might come in blue. It seems ridiculous that, that he's doing this, but this is his point, that Yahweh is the one true God, the only one who has been faithful. It's absurd to consider giving worship to any other god out there. Of course it's ridiculous to consider it evil to serve the Lord. As for me and my house, Joshua says, we will serve the Lord. Now, it's interesting that, that this particular verse has kind of become a, a bit of a tagline in Christian home decor. Some of you might have in your houses a, a sign by, by the front door or something that's, that has this verse, we will serve the, the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Or maybe a, a piece of artwork elsewhere in the house, maybe a coffee mug. I know Rachel and I have a, have a decorative cross in our bedroom that has that verse. But I find it interesting that that it only, it only contains the last part of the verse in our home decor. I think considering the options in this challenge that is put forth by Joshua, we should resolve all the more to rid ourselves of the idols, the idols that are quietly vying for our attention in our homes, resolving all the more to serve the Lord in sincerity and faithfulness. Choose for yourselves this day. It is a moment-by-moment, day-by-day choice to walk in fellowship with our God. And at any point along our day, we might be pressed with a decision where we have to choose between worshiping the creator or worshiping created things or worshiping ourselves. We have choices to make. I, uh, I love the Indiana Jones movies of the 1980s. Um, they, they were fun adventures. Not quite the adventures that Manfred and Barbara go on on our behalf when they're on mission, but, but they were fun adventures. Um, so, so the last one in the original trilogy, not counting that money grab one that was done a few years back, but uh, the original trilogy, the third one is called Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And Harrison Ford, 
is the role of Indiana Jones. Sean Connery is his father. And so they're working together to, to find the mythological holy grail. And, and so near the end, um, oh, I'm not going to give away totally all the ending, but if you haven't seen it before and you don't want to know how it ends, just maybe cover your ears for a second here. But, but what happens is Indiana Jones, he's trying to find the secret passage to get to the holy grail. His father's been wounded, and so he's, he's trying to save his father. And so he, he goes through all these crazy obstacles and, and ends up going through the secret passage, and he reaches the location of the grail. And it's kind of this cave room that's filled with all these different chalices and cups. And it's being guarded by this old withered knight who's supposedly been there for hundreds of years. And so unbeknownst to Indiana Jones is that he's been followed. The, the bad guys have followed him. And so they kind of come into the room just as he's about to figure out what's going on. And so the knight kind of warns them all that, that only one of the cups is the true holy grail. So he kind of gives this warning. He says, you must choose wisely. And, and, and so then one of the bad guys kind of looks around and then he takes a cup and he starts drinking from it. And, uh, well, let's just say it doesn't work out too well for him. And so after that all kind of settles down, the, the knight kind of looks over and says, he chose poorly. And, and I think about times in my life throughout my day where I'm selfish with my time. I'm not thinking of other people. I, I allow resentment to shape how I see different people. I, I'm, I'm short with my kids. And then I, I hear the voice in my head, and it's, it's usually well after the fact, but I hear, you chose poorly. Choose for yourselves this day. Who will you serve? Choose for yourselves this day. Let's look at how the people respond. Let's read verses 16 to 18. It says, Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. And so the people agree. They see the absurdity of Joshua's suggestion. The, the truth of the track record of a faithful God has hit them in a profound new way. And so as the people of Israel reflect on who God is and, and what he actually wants, they, they are seeking to rededicate themselves. They want to serve him wholeheartedly. Now you would think that, that this seems satisfying to Joshua as, as you know, he poses this ultimatum to them. Choose for yourselves this day, whether it's the Lord or the false gods. My household's going to worship God. You know, you're right. It's crazy to consider other gods. That's crazy talk. God is the one true God. Look at all that he did for us. We'll serve him too. And you would think that they would just renew the covenant right then and there and make it a done deal. Everyone seems to be on the same page in agreement. But let's read what Joshua says next. Verse 19 says, Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. 22, then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the, to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these books, wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, 
lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. The people want to join Joshua in serving the Lord, but he quickly pumps the brakes. Not so fast, he's saying. You were not able to serve the Lord. The public opinion has just come back a resounding yes, and yet here he is saying no. Why is he doing this? Because this is a solemn moment. This is the renewal of a covenant with the Lord of the universe. This is a rededication of an entire nation. So Joshua is expressing caution, not because, not because it's an impossible task, it's not a wrong desire to want to worship God and obey him, but because he knows that people need God's help in order to meet these terms. And so he wants them to consider the cost, to reflect on who God actually is and what he wants. It seems a little troubling that the people just want to just kind of immediately agree and, and reaffirm their desire rather than asking for some sort of help, some instruction in light of the warning. The Lord is a holy God, a jealous God. If you forsake him and serve foreign gods, he will consume you. Yeah, 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 we're good. We're good. We'll serve him. We will serve him. His voice will, we will obey. Consider the cost. Consider the cost. Reflect on who God is and what he wants. Walking with God should be a tough sell. It is a tough sell in our day and age, and it should be. Jesus was always quick to emphasize this. When the popularity was, was increasing and the size of the crowds was growing, Jesus would remind people, you know, you're to die to self. You're to take up your cross. You have to leave everything behind to truly follow me. Have we truly reflected on who God is? Have we, have we truly internalized what, what he wants from our lives? We shouldn't just look to kind of quickly jump in agreement like the people here without weighing the magnitude of what it means to give our life in its entirety into the hands of the Lord of the universe. You are not able to serve the Lord, certainly not on your own. And when I think about that, trying to do things on my own, I can certainly re relate to the experience of Israel. We have the foresight of scripture to know about their up and down experience. Maybe you can too, you know, you, you come to church on Sunday and you're encouraged to be surrounded by God's people and, you know, you engage in worship and, and the sermon is convicting, hopefully today's is too. Um, you're in prayer with people and you feel like you're on track with God again. Things are good. But then Monday morning comes. Maybe it gets off to a bad start in the workplace. Before you know it, you're, you're kind of sucked back into the gossip and the negative talk. Even though you don't want to, you find yourself laughing at some of the, the rude jokes from your coworkers. Maybe you're short with your children or critical of your spouse. And Sunday, Sunday's that, that people of Israel declaration experience. I'm good. I'll serve you, Lord. I'll do anything you tell me to. I'll be a bold witness for you this week. I'm going to lead my family better this week. You know what? I'm going to wake up at 5 a.m. every morning this week just so that I can spend an extra hour in prayer with you. And then we, we just so quickly fall short and we can't make good on our promises. We wonder why we can't seem to keep up that, that fervor, that spiritual passion we have on Sunday morning. We go to a, a weekend conference and, and we go on that spiritual high and then we wonder why we can't keep that up days and weeks later. We have this incredible experience of intimacy with God on that mission trip overseas, but then when we come back home, we wonder why God seems so distant and far away. We have these, these moments of worship and community, but then left to ourselves, our hearts are drawn somehow to the temptation of unwholesome things when we're alone 
I know I certainly deal with that at times. And, and in those moments, as my heart wants those things, I need to know who I am in Christ. I need Christ in those moments. Left to myself, my heart betrays me. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But the people want to agree with Joshua. They, they seem to feel like they have a handle on, on these covenant terms. And so from there, with, again, with the, with the benefit of having the foresight of, of what will take place throughout the rest of Scripture, we see the beginning of the storm clouds forming. And, and if we were to read through the next number of historical books chronicling the people of Israel, we will see this up and down experience, this perpetual struggle of turbulence where the people waver back and forth between wanting to worship God but so often falling into worshiping other things. This is the warning that Joshua is giving here. And so in this famous last words moment, Joshua, as he tells the people that they're witnesses, he again mentions these foreign gods, verse 23. He, notice that he even goes as far as to say that these gods are living among you already. And of course we know that, that there are some of those who remained in the land, those that weren't totally driven out, those who have retained their own culture and their own gods. Put them away, Joshua says. Put away the foreign gods. We will serve the Lord, the people say. His voice we will obey. And so the covenant is finalized. Verses 25 and 26. Joshua sets up this, this large stone to commemorate it near the very place where God first appeared to Abraham all those hundreds of years ago. And then Joshua gives his famous last words that this stone is a witness against us for it has heard the words of the Lord that he's spoken to us as a witness against you if you deal falsely with your God. The terms are finalized. The people are choosing in that moment to respond in worship and obedience. They remember what God has done. Remember what the Lord has done. Reflect on who he is and what he wants and then respond in worship and obedience. Are you living in a spirit of obedience these days? Do you have an attitude of worship? If not, where might your joy be lacking? What is it that, that might be holding you back? just want to make note of a couple things in these, these last few verses of the chapter. In verse 32, it, it mentions that the people bury the bones of Joseph. They bury them there at Shechem. And, and that actually fulfills a wish. Joseph had wished he'd made this known back in Genesis chapter 50 that his bones be taken there, even though he died while he was in Egypt. And so uh, if you read in Exodus, you can see this. Moses had ensured that the bones be transported during the time going towards the promised land. And so now, after the covenant has been renewed, God's faithfulness is further demonstrated in this act of, of fulfilling Joseph's wish to have his bones buried. But a few verses before that, we read about Joshua's death. And we look at how verse 31 affirms his leadership as a servant of the Lord. It says that Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua. And that's a testament to God's faithfulness in working in his life. The Lord spoke to Joshua. He led him faithfully throughout his life as he sought to lead the people. The Lord was the one who provided the strength, the encouragement. You know, be bold. Be courageous. The Lord your God is with you. The Lord was the one who granted him the wisdom and gave him the victory. And what a faithful servant Joshua was who, even to the end, he wanted his famous last words to carry significance before the people and before the Lord. And what a faithful God who loved him every step of the way. And the story of Joshua, this entire book, it points us to Jesus. I, I trust that you can see that as we've journeyed through that together. Whereas Joshua is, is certainly commended as a hero and as a leader who, who sought the Lord and obeyed him and, and God used him to defeat the enemies in the land of Canaan, 
Jesus is our greater hero, the one who, who had unbroken fellowship with the Father throughout his earthly days, and the one who, who defeated our enemies of sin and death to the glory of God. And whereas Israel, the, the people of Israel, eventually failed to keep their promise, they could not keep that covenant every single day to prominently and obediently walk in service and surrender to God. Jesus did not. Jesus was the one, though he was tempted, though he faced opposition and oppression, he never strayed from breaking his Father's commandments, and he never wandered from accomplishing his Heavenly Father's will. Jesus is the greater Joshua. And where Israel faltered, Jesus did not. He's the true expression of love. He's the true expression of faithfulness from our faithful God. And just as the covenant had been made these thousands of years ago, in this moment here in Joshua 24, between the people and God, now there's a new covenant that's made possible for each of us through the life-giving atonement of Jesus. His body and blood created that new covenant, that we would experience the forgiveness of sin, that we would be placed in right standing before God Most High, that we would be blessed with endless riches and blessings, experiencing the abundant life of living in fellowship with him both now and forevermore, and being given the incredible invitation to join him in the mission of sharing the life-giving gospel, the good news to those around us. What a faithful God to do all these, those things and more for us and for his glory. Choose for yourselves this day. Some of us, if we're honest, we've made some poor choices lately. And, and some of us might still be dealing with, with the fallout from those choices. And I want to remind us that, that in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. We talked about this with our young adults this past week, Tuesday night here at the church, that, that we're not defined by our poor choices of the past. Our past doesn't define us. It doesn't mean that there aren't consequences for our choices, but we can move forward in the victory that Christ has won for us. What idols or foreign gods might still remain, though? What are the things that are still wrestling in your life for your attention and your affections? By the grace of God, you can leave them behind and you can move forward with living for him alone. God's given us his word. He's given each of us who are in Christ. He's given us his Holy Spirit. And he's given one another. He's given us one another to share and to, to pray with and to journey alongside and to minister to one another. So bring these things. Maybe those poor choices aren't known yet. Bring those things out into the open. If they're taking away from your true joy in Christ, bring them to the open. Some of you today, you may be in a place where, where you're not sure where you, where you even stand. Maybe you've never truly chosen this day. Maybe you've never truly chosen Jesus and asked for the forgiveness that comes by, by believing in what he did on the cross for you. Maybe, maybe you're here and you made a choice a long time ago. And if you're honest about it, you haven't really felt God's presence in a long time. Today could be a turning point for you to come back, to come back to God wholeheartedly and repent and respond in worship to him. And if that is you, I encourage you this morning, you know, I know we're into the long weekend, but I encourage you, don't run out the door without talking to someone. Talk to, talk, come talk to me or talk to Pastor Stephen or just someone you know and trust. There, there's no shame in doing this. You don't need to be afraid. If, if there's something that you know you need to deal with and talk about further, don't be afraid. Bring it to the open. Well, we have journeyed with God's people, and we have seen how clear it is that, that God is a faithful God. And I want to remind us, as, as this book wraps up, that just as much as we have heard throughout the book of Joshua, that God has been the one leading and providing and fighting and uniting, that at the end of it all, in this final chapter, we see Joshua poses the ultimatum that, that we each have a choice. There is a choice for us in this to decide 
There's a choice for the people. And so in our own lives, as we seek to follow a faithful God, I trust that we would be inspired to, to look back, to take stock of the track record, to know what God has done, to reflect on who God truly is, to reflect on what he wants from our lives each and every single day. And so that as we do that, we would respond. We would respond in joy and thanksgiving as the people did here, respond in obedience and worship so that Jesus is glorified in all that we say and all that we do. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the life that it gives and for the truth that it tells. Father, we thank you for this book that we've gone through over over the last number of weeks where we see examples of time and time again you proving your faithfulness to us. And Lord, I pray for each of us this morning. Maybe we've forgotten what you've done in our lives. Maybe it's been a while since we've actually stopped to think about the miracles you've performed on our behalf. Maybe, Lord, we've lost sight of who you actually are and what it means to give our lives to you. And so as a result, we, we hold things back. Maybe there are idols, or maybe there are situations that we're just not giving control over to you. Lord, I pray that by your spirit, by your grace, you would allow us to respond in worship and respond in obedience. I don't know what that looks like for each person, but I pray we'd have the courage to do it. Thank you that you are faithful, Lord. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 23, says, Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Amen trust you've been blessed by our time together this morning. Certainly want to encourage you to meet and greet on the way out. Talk to Pastor Bruce and Glennis. Make sure you say hello to them. And if you do need to pray or talk further, we're certainly available. We're here for you. But God bless you. Have a wonderful rest of your long weekend. And know this Stone Ridge Fellowship, you are loved. Amen. God bless.